And in many ways, that's why the Reformation is such an important period in shaping the modern understanding of religious liberty, because it's at this moment that the state begins to be articulated as having a separate set of responsibilities and purposes to that of the church. Welcome to The Political Animals. I'm your host, Jonathan Cole. I'm a scholar, writer, and translator specializing in political theology, the intersection between religion and politics. Joining me is Dr. Sarah Irving Stonebreaker, who is a senior lecturer in history at Western Sydney University. She is a co-editor of the Journal of Religious History. She was awarded her PhD in history from Cambridge University, And she has previously worked as an assistant professor at Florida State University and also a junior research fellow at Wolfson College, Oxford University. Her first book, Natural Science and the Origins of the British Empire, was awarded the Royal Society of Literature and Jerwood Foundation Award for Nonfiction. She's currently working on two book projects, one looking at the forgotten histories of religious liberty in Australia from 1788 until the present, and another looking at the death of history and the hope of Christianity. And Sarah joins me for a conversation about the history of the concept, the notion of religious liberty. Sarah, it's a great pleasure to have you on the show. Thank you. It's a great pleasure to be here. Sarah, if you don't mind, I'm going to dispense with any further pleasantries and dive straight into the hearty meal we have before us. So let me ask this, when, where, and why does the notion of religious liberty first emerge? Yeah, this is such an interesting question. Um, I think in no small part because we have such a lively, if you like, and often contentious discussion about religious freedom. What we And we normally use the term religious freedom in contemporary political debate in Australia and around the world. But actually, we don't tend to actually at both a scholarly level and a popular level, know much about the history of the idea of religious liberty. Um, In terms of tracing the origins of this idea, we probably need to be careful about what we mean when we are defining the idea of religious liberty. Because, well, we've already seen that religious liberty and freedom in many ways are synonyms. And so when we look for the origins of a concept, the question is, okay, so are we looking for the origins of a particular phrase or term? Um, And there is actually, which I'll talk about in a moment, there is a historical moment where we can actually pinpoint the first time that the phrase uh, freedom of religion was used, at least translated into English as freedom of religion. But actually, we should probably point out that the origins of the idea of religious liberty actually go back even earlier than we see the first use of the phrase. And this is because religious liberty involves ideas about freedom of conscience and the idea that every human being has a rational conscience endowed by God and that they ought to be able to use this conscience to find God. Um, And we see this idea actually in the pages of the New Testament. But in terms of the history, so it's good to kind of understand that kind of prehistory, but in terms of the, okay, the history of the idea of and the actual term freedom of religion, we actually turn to the third century AD to 
uh, the first, at least the earliest recorded use of the phrase is by Tertullian, uh, one of the early church fathers. He was actually a convert to Christianity and he is living in Carthage in North Africa. And he first uses the term freedom of religion basically as a critique of the Roman Empire's policy of persecuting Christians. And the way he uses it in his uh, ad scapulum, the letter that he is writing, is that he uses this phrase to basically argue that it is a fundamental right that every person should be able to have the freedom to worship or freedom of religion, it's often translated to, but freedom to worship according to his own convictions. And so we see that actually as early as the third century um, AD. But interestingly enough, even then, uh, what Tertullian means when he says, well, and, and we often, of course, we're translating here the Latin into the English, what Tertullian means when he uses the, the phrase translated into English as the freedom of worship or freedom of religion, he doesn't mean it in terms of a sort of individual right. And that's often how we use the concept today. So in our you know, early 21st century, late 20th century world, when we tend to think about rights, we tend to think about rights belonging to particular individuals. And so even then, Tertullian kind of uses this phrase slightly differently. What Tertullian means, and this is, again, the kind of uh, valency that the term had for many uh, centuries in its early history, really what that idea of freedom of religion means is that it is not a right belonging to individuals, but rather it is uh, part of the right and proper ordering of nature. Often the sort of the term that's used is yours naturali. Often that's translated as a kind of natural right. But what that means is it's part of the kind of right and just ordering of nature. It's not yet historically the idea that the right belongs to an individual. That's really fascinating, and I'm sure it will surprise many listeners to know that the phrase itself, albeit translated from Latin, is so ancient. And partly because we have this secular myth, as you've characterized it very aptly, which is that this whole notion of you know, freedom of religion connected to things like freedom of conscience, this is one of the great um discoveries of the enlightenment once we start to throw off the superstition of christianity and we you know we become more enlightened and higher beings but also because all listeners are going to be aware that throughout many centuries of history religious freedom how shall we say this hasn't exactly been put into good effect quite the opposite <laughs> there's been a lot of persecution both in and outside christianity of different sex and denominations and and practices so i'm i'm really curious to know given the ancient pedigree of this concept of freedom of religion notwithstanding the the subtle differences of what it meant in tertullian's context how long is it before the the, the phrase or the concept reappears in writing or if it if it's earlier than when it reappears in writing when do we see it again manifest, or I guess another way of asking it, just be very confusing, is was this just the, dare I say it, enlightened arguments of one church father that didn't particularly set down roots? Yes, that is such an interesting question because, as you say, actually there is a history of all kinds of persecutions and the idea that freedom of conscience and worship ought to be respected comes into being as an idea long before it's actually 
recognised and put into legal effect. Um, and so I think in, in many ways, the question you're asking is kind of what's the next step in our story, as it were. And I think one of the interesting things that we um, need to understand is that the idea of freedom of religion or religious liberty really involves in this period an understanding of uh, two kind of closely related con concepts, the idea of freedom of conscience and then also the idea of freedom of worship as well. Now, Tertullian certainly wasn't alone in arguing that one's conscience ought to be free and therefore one ought to obey one's conscience. Um, in the ancient world and indeed in the sort of the late, late antiquity, there is all kinds of discussions about the idea of conscience and what it means for a human being. And it's really in that context that the idea that conscience ought to be protected starts to emerge. And it's not just, so Tertullian quite famously, you know, puts these ideas into words and gives them quite a famous articulation. But there are others in the late, in late antiquity and indeed a bit earlier in the ancient world who were arguing about the importance of conscience um, and indeed early and into the medieval world as well. And I think that idea that freedom of, con that there ought to be a kind of conscience or a liberty, a natural, sort of natural right that protects every human being's, um, the importance of every human being following their conscience with regards in particular to worship is a very distinctive idea. And I think that's something that we need to recognise too in the context of the fact that actually it emerges in the early Christian church in a way that's quite distinctive from the rest of the classical world. And one of the things, now I'm actually um, an early modernist historian by training. And so when I was exploring this kind of ancient history, one of the things that I found absolutely fascinating and which I think your listeners might find fascinating too, is the way in which the church dis develops quite a distinct and fruitful understanding of what conscience is and the fact that it ought to be protected in a way that ideas of conscience elsewhere in ancient thought, simply they simply hadn't gotten there. So for example, um, Socrates, of course, quite famously dies for his conscience, right? Refusing to bow down to the gods of Athens. But there's no argument made that Socrates this conscience ought to be protected, that this is something that ought not to have happened. And yet this is the fundamental novelty, I think, about what begins to happen in the early church. The idea is that not only is conscience universal, and there, of course, it's tied to this very important theological idea of the, the imago dei, the image of God in people, because the idea is, and they, they draw this out from the Old Testament, but also in New Testament uh particularly in Paul's letters, where there's this idea, look, every human being in Romans 2, for example, is endowed with a conscience and it it ought to convict them if they don't know God. And so there's this idea in the early church, that, look, every human being has a conscience. Now, one of the reasons I think why the idea that, well, therefore conscience ought to be protected develops in the early church is that the church, the Christian church actually develops as a corporate as a community which is fundamentally distinct from any other religion in the ancient world uh, 
religions are inherently tied to the state. Um, often rulers are worshipped themselves as divine. This happens in Japan. It ha happens also in the ancient world. Of course, it happens with the, or quasi-divine, happens with the Roman emperors. And yet in the early Christian church, they are part of a body which is fundamentally distinctive from any other sort of temporal or secular grouping. And what that means is that that body of believers, what are they united by? Well, they're united by their convictions of and their doctrinal belief that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. And indeed, they're made up of people who are Jewish and non-Jewish, right? Jew and Gentile, slave and free, male and female. And so I think one of the reasons, I'm kind of testing a kind of hypothesis here, but one of the fascinating things that occurs then is that there's a new set of, there's a new kind of historical context for making the discussion of conscience and its protection uniquely significant, precisely because the church is living in a kind of community in which they are united by conscience and yet have all kinds of different distinctions in terms of their other cultural and class and gender and all their other kind of earthly, worldly, cultural differences. And I think for that reason, this is why, you know, when you read the New Testament and you read Paul's letters, the idea of conscience comes up again and again. And there are all kinds of discussions about well, what do we do when people think that they can and can't eat certain things? And then the discussion of, well, we have to, those with a stronger conscience need to bear with those of a weaker conscience. And so therefore, in the early church, sorry, I know this is quite a long answer to your question, but I think it's incredibly important historically, because the idea of the emergence of conscience as a fundamental uh, distinguishing feature of what it is to be human, and therefore the idea that conscience ought to be protected, emerges in quite a unique way in the early church. Um, and then, okay, so then if we skip forward in the medieval world, and this is sort of more of the historical answer to your question, what happens next? Well, in the, in the medieval world, then there's all kinds of arguments that we ought to follow our conscience. Um, Aquinas, argues this and there he's then he's drawing upon an echoing kind of Augustine in a lot of ways and so in the medieval world that's the idea that conscience ought to be protected um, even though there even in the medieval world it's very rarely the argument that this is something that the state or governments can do that's a much later idea but we do really get that that idea of conscience ought to be protected in the medieval world yeah so this is really extraordinary in many ways, to learn that it's actually Christianity to which we are indebted in many significant ways for our very modern concept of conscience and its <laughs> importance. I know, I know, we don't get the full modern version in the church, but the the point you're making, which is really um, quite a revelation to me, and I'm sure many lis listeners, because this is not part of even the popular historiography of Christians and their identity. And, and I can draw a contrast here. You know, we're responsible for things like natural law and rights. This is the, the story you get you get told. And I know that it's a complex discussion here. But uh, based on what you're arguing, I think quite compellingly, is actually Christianity for reasons of context and also theology and the uniqueness of the way it operates as a religion really discovers the importance of conscience and following conscience. And that that's really essential in that early context because all 
Christian believers have to make a pretty significant conscientious decision to either leave their old religion, sometimes at great cost and risk, that goes for Jews as well as pagans, Mm. and embrace this new religion, so new that the Roman state sees it as a as a threat. Yes. As states often do with with something so so novel. And so this, it seems to me, is yet another one of the really seminal, if you like, cultural, political, yes. social contributions of Christianity, but one perhaps that is much more poorly understood, even amongst contemporary Christians, dare I say it, as well as the secular world around them. Yes, I think so, yes. And I think the other interesting thing we need to understand historically in terms of this early context is, of course, once the late Roman Empire becomes nominally Christian, then you have a whole different relationship between uh, the state, if you like, or the, the political and the church. This is something that Augustine writes about in The City of God. But in terms of our kind of big history, this arc of the story that we're drawing here, what it means is that the a new kind of question is introduced because once states are nominally Christian in the sense that Christianity becomes the official religion. And even after the fall of the Roman Empire, the the emergence of kind of very early medieval Europe, this occurs too. Then a whole other kind of part of this question emerges, which is how does conscience then relate to the, the official kind of practices and worship in those new Christian states? How does conscience fit in when you actually have an official state religion and so forth? And then in the early Middle Ages, really there starts to be a shift towards a discussion of less of a focus of conscience, that we see that emerge and be talked about um, prolifically in the Protestant Reformation for various reasons, and we'll, we'll get to that. But in the Middle Ages, interestingly, that part of our story is really about, well, what are the rights uh, that people hold in terms of the yeah, their rights in terms of worship and vis-a-vis the state. Um, And there the interesting thing is that there are certain rights, and this is actually too where we probably need to start introducing and talking about the concept of religious toleration. How does that fit in? So religious toleration, because often when you talk, even when I talk to some of my students today that I'm teaching about this and they say, and what about this idea of religious toleration? Because this is still actually some of the language that we use. So there is a kind of conceptual distinction here. Um, religious toleration, and actually it's not a distinctly, uh, it is very well fleshed out in the history of Christian thought, but actually we see the practices of religious toleration throughout different civilizations. Even in the ancient world, you know, the, the Jewish people when they are in um, exile in Babylon are able to keep their religion. So toleration of different religions is often, it's basically a kind of pragmatic decision made by the state or the ruler to kind of tolerate a particular religion in order to maintain social peace and political harmony. And yeah, we see it, the Ottoman Empire practices a form of this. We see it in various different kinds of empires. And really, religious toleration in that sense then becomes part of our story of what happens in early modern Europe, because they're the kind of religious minorities, well, particular, in particular, um, it's Jewish people in early modern Europe. And there are some quite apart from the really abominable treatment of Jewish people um, in all parts of 
Europe in the Middle Ages. But the interesting thing is in terms of just this specific question of, okay, what is you know the history of toleration and religious rights and so forth, we do find in the Middle Ages that there are certain um, rights accorded to Jews in certain medieval cities where they are permitted the rights to, for example, practice, like observe their Sabbath and practice and so forth. So there, however, it's kind of more of a religious toleration. And useful too, in terms of, because we've been talking about the history of rights, it's useful too to remember there that, um, again, we're talking about the idea of rights belonging to groups of people. Um, they are kind of corporate rights. And so even when you read medieval documents um, that are about sort of natural rights existing and therefore being enshrined in different documents, um, the recognition is that these, these rights belong to groups of people. And historically that occurs, of course, centuries before the idea is that, oh, a right might belong to a, an individual political subject. That's a much later idea. So like even when I read with my students um, the Magna Carta when I teach medieval history, they're always fascinated to see, oh, look, there are sort of rights to particular groups of people, like widows have a particular set of rights um, uh, in the Magna Carta. And there are certain, in natural law in medieval Europe, there are particular rights accorded to different groups of people. And that occurs too with, to some degree, religious toleration as well. I find it really interesting because it's clear from this historical survey that persecution and toleration in a strange way, are not mutually exclusive. They kind of coexist side by side. So if you take even the, the Roman Empire, it's actually remarkably tolerant religiously. Like it, it constantly absorbs and incorporates new religions. It's just when it comes to this one new religion of Christianity, uh, and there was even a toleration for Judaism of a kind in Palestine at least, and of course there were Jewish-speaking communities uh sorry, Jewish-speaking, <laughs> Greek-speaking Jewish communities in Rome. That's yeah. why we get Paul's uh, epistle to the Romans after all. So there was there's this strange religious toleration where almost anything goes. But then, of course, <laughs> there's this intolerance that comes in specific circumstances, which from our vantage point lead to ghastly abuses of yeah. people's liberty and rights. And again, that, that Jewish example in medieval Europe is really instructive too because there, there really is this terrible, awful history of persecution uh, against Jewish minorities where they're really, in different instances, you know, you can think of various crusades that kind of, you know, hack their way through parts of Germany and just these Christians going to liberate the Holy Land are taking, you know, doing abominable things, as you say, to Jewish communities along the way. And yet they are allowed to exist and observe their faith to a certain degree. That's not to say they're, they're given full equal rights to, to Christians, but of course they are tolerated in, in a certain fashion. Yeah, in some places. And it's largely because the medieval, or sort of, well, this larger question of why is it that the medieval state operates like this? It's largely because in the pre-modern world, and this is such an interesting thing to sort of get our 21st century heads around as well, in the pre-modern world, the idea of maintaining civil and political order is largely vertical in the sense that the idea is that civil order can really only be maintained if there is order emanating from the top and if there is one official established religion. And now in practice, it might be that therefore you can tolerate particular religions, but there's always one kind of official uh, religion and its practice 
that is associated with the top. And all this begins to change, especially after the Reformation. And in the modern world, our, our kind of understanding of the social order today is much more horizontal in the sense that in, at least in Western liberal democracies, we understand each other as individual rights-bearing subjects. We're a kind of group of individuals horizontally united, not by any kind of particular normative tradition, but rather that we will um, ascribe effectively to the same kind of contract between each other and live horizontally without ascribing to any kind of normative state, but this is, or normative kind of story. But this is, yeah, this is really not the case in the medieval world. Sarah, you mentioned the Reformation a couple of times there, and clearly religious liberty is a massive theme because you've got people as a matter of conscience breaking away from the Catholic Church. There's all kinds of new and free debate about theology. It does lead to a lot of violence and intolerance too, but this is one of the seminal uh, moments in the development of religious liberty, looking from our vantage point today in the 21st century, what is important about the Reformation? What what happens during the Reformation in this story of the development of religious liberty? Yeah, I think, well, two, two things in terms of our story. The first is that we see again the idea of conscience becoming incredibly important. Um, in many of Martin Luther's works, he talks about the importance of needing to follow one's conscience. Um, even when he's writing about the relationship between secular authority and sacred authority, um, he talks about the importance of Christians following their conscience. And even that is a very important um, historical emphasis because in medieval Catholicism, the emphasis upon the church as a sacramental institution, the fact that people, for the most part, um, were not able to understand what was going on because it was in Latin and they're not reading the Bible in the vernacular. There's not that the centrality of conscience to the life of faith is not nearly so important as it is after the Reformation. Um, so okay, that's one kind of part of the story. But really in many ways the other the second thing that's really important is more important in a lot of ways because one of the things that occurs after or in the process of the Reformation is that there is a new understanding of the role and responsibilities of the state because effectively once you have states that say um, you know beginning in the Saxon states that broke away from you know that joined the Reformation and broke away from the Catholic Church once you have states that say well we are not officially under the Catholic Church then you have the idea that the role of the state is not simply to look after people's salvation, but rather there's this kind of distinction between the jurisdiction of the state and the jurisdiction of the church. And in Lutheran countries, this effectively means that the church becomes, um, or it's effect, at least as an outward institution, it is under the headship of the state. Um, but that's really important because it articulates the idea that political authority extends, and I'm paraphrasing Martin Luther here, no further than to the body, goods and outward earthly matters, Luther famously says. And then the church has a different set of spiritual, as different jurisdiction, spiritual jurisdiction. And that becomes such an important idea historically, because really it's that kind of watershed historical moment where we begin to understand that the state that the state's responsibilities really extend only to outward things and that the state ought not to compel 
conscience. But then, of course, it raises this interesting question. Okay, so if you have a Europe after the Reformation in which you have a number of polities in Europe, states now that are uh, Protestant countries and no longer under the aegis of the Pope, they have an official form of religion. So then that issue of conscience and the freedom of pursuing that conscience in actually worship according to it is renewed because, you know, what do you do with the Catholic minorities who live in Protestant countries? What do you do with the Protestant um, minorities who live in Catholic countries? Um, what do you do with, and then of course, once Protestantism uh, splinters, if you like, into its more radical forms, what do you do with the more radical Protestant uh, minorities who live in Protestant countries, to what extent do they owe their obedience to civil government? And in many ways, that's why the Reformation is such an important period in shaping the modern understanding of religious liberty, because it's at this moment that the state begins to be articulated as having a separate set of responsibilities and purposes to that of the church. And so in many ways, the whole language of thinking about the relationship between church and state, that kind of phrase that we still see uttered you know, in the media even today, that is really a kind of language which in many ways and a set of concepts that is bequeathed to us from the Reformation. This might be an opportune moment to bring in John Locke because my mind immediately went to, as you're talking to John Locke's, a letter concerning toleration, which I think is from 1689. So this is, I guess, going into the next, late into the, the century after the, the pivotal Reformation century. But I was struck on re, upon rereading it, just two things. One, you get this really strong Reformation political theology where he talks about the absolute fixed and rigid difference spheres between the civil and the ecclesiastical and the, the civil really has no business getting involved in religious matters and particularly this question of the salvation of souls. But then again, the the idea that I think is interesting and maybe he's just the key exponent of it, maybe not the originator, I don't know, you could possibly tell me, is he's really focused on not just the liberty of religious freedom from the state but a kind of intra-Christian liberty. And so he also draw, draws a firm boundary between different churches and says, well, no church has the has no, each individual Christian church has absolutely no jurisdiction over the beliefs, the order, the uh, theology, the activities of any other church. And that really your theology is a matter of individual conscience once you join a church which he describes as a free and voluntary society then you are kind of bound by its internal rules and the, and the one measure that the, that particular small c church has is to excommunicate or evict you but basically no one's born into a religion like yeah. the actual the yeah. choice of church is purely a matter of conscience and you are there as a voluntary member the state can't uh, get involved in any way with the order and the beliefs of that that church. That's a matter for the the sort of uh, men in the language of the day <laughs> that make up the voluntary yes. uh, society. So, I'd be really interested in, in you know if you could take us even deeper into John Locke and how he he fits in to yes. the story. Isn't that fascinating? Because what you put your foot uh, your finger on there is the fact that Locke effectively redefines the church as a private association. Mm. And now, interestingly enough, that has huge consequences, which you touched on. Um, 
But interestingly enough, the reason that he does that is that Locke is living in a period in which the the great kind of cultural fear of the 17th century was that religious division causes horrific bloodshed um, and leads to incredible violence. I mean, this is this is a Europe, and Locke writes a letter concerning toleration when he's in exile in the Netherlands, and so they know what's going on in Europe, but even, of course, in England's own history with the civil wars, this is a Europe and the British Isles which have been racked by the most horrific bloodshed and the argument is religious division causes bloodshed and so it raises this kind of question so how then do you maintain civil order now it's tempting as a 21st century um, person living in a liberal democracy to say of course and often my students say how did they not know that we can <laughs> do this but they're not like they're living in the 17th century um modern liberal democracy, Western liberal democracies do not exist. And so the idea that they have about how civil harmony is maintained, and they don't have the idea that universal laws apply equally to all people regardless of race and property qualifications and gender and so forth. So they're not thinking in terms of liberal democracies. They are basically thinking in a worldview that basically says, if we want civil harmony and order, then we may need to maintain one like effectively one kind of religion, one official religion. And indeed the other kind of iconic text of the mid 17th century in this respect, Hobbes's Leviathan makes exactly that argument. Hobbes terrified by, and his whole life um, really is a life in which he was sort of, even when he talks about his own birth, um, he talks about the fact that his mother probably was sent into labor by the fear of the Spanish Armada um, reaching the shores of England, basically fearing just, a complete deterioration into anarchy because of religious bloodshed. And so anyway, basically argues in Leviathan, which is effectively, we might use the term today, almost a totalitarian um, text in many ways, that no, there ought to be one permitted form of religion because so afraid was he of the prospect of um, anarchy and, and bloodshed caused by religious differences that the idea is, nope, there ought not to be, perhaps you might have a freedom of conscience, but you ought not to be able to practice it we must, the sovereign must have the power to maintain civil order by basically maintaining religion. And so that's why Locke's argument in the letter of concerning toleration is so incredibly radical, which you pointed to, because basically what Locke is saying, and indeed we should remember here, the letter is published anonymously. Um, and anyway, people soon figured out who wrote it, but it was indeed a radical letter because here's Locke saying, no, let's actually have uh, toleration. In fact, the chief toleration, he writes, is the chief characteristic mark of the true church. In other words, toleration ought not to apply, and this is the point you were getting at too, not only apply to the state tolerating multiple forms of Christianity. Now, we should probably deal with, we'll talk about minorities in a moment, Catholics and atheists. Um, but even among churches themselves, they have no right to coerce the conscience. And that's really interesting too, because basically he redefines the church as a civil association. And in doing so, he depoliticizes conflict because effectively he's basically saying churches are just civil organizations in many ways, like other voluntary organizations are, like the sort of the gentlemen who pursue natural philosophy. The church effectively is just another voluntary organization, but he's doing that because he wants to depoliticize religious differences. How fascinating is that? 
oh extraordinary and you know it's re- really it's just striking because you know that that anecdote about your students because it is it is easy to develop a kind of frustration when you, you when you look at all the horrors of religious bigotry and intolerance from the ancient world mm. on and I think you know how you know take 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 the most egregious example you know the hideous ways that uh, people were killed for heresy yep. in the Middle Ages, you know, being hung, hung, drawn and quartered. I mean, and and I think Locke himself kind of alludes to this, that, I mean, you know, how can anyone call themselves a Christian when they're committing such obvious sins in the name of yes. <laughs> orthodoxy? But that said, you know, I mean, you, you just noted then that the lived experience of many of our predecessors that have lived through different ages was one of actually very serious religious violence and dissension and and discord and so there was every reason to fear religious toleration and you can it's not hard it shouldn't be difficult to see the plausibility of having you know a single you know Hobbes's Leviathan this kind of autocratic ruler that subsumes the wills of all of its citizens and even when you're being punished, it's kind of, in, in a strange philosophical sense, you're punishing yourself because, you know, whatever the, the government does is right because there's this emphasis on on order. And it's it's not the sort of power-hungry idea, we modern idea we have of, uh, you know, dictators and autocrats. It's very much driven from a concern, you know, born of the Civil War in England and his experiences his his kind of shall we say pessimistic anthropology and and the like but again you know it's it's predicated on very real lived experiences and so this is all by way of saying you know i've realized that we should really see this as this evolution or development in the idea that actually we can (laughs) tolerate religious difference is a remarkable achievement it's not obvious. It's not easy. It's not simple. There was every reason for the counter argument to say actually what we need is a really strong state that imposes a kind of religious order, yeah. keeps minorities in check, lest we all descend into, as you said, anarchy, civil civil conflict. And so maybe we should actually be what's the word? More impressed with the John Locks, the Tertullians, the Aquinas's and the various figures that take this radical step of saying, actually, you know what? Mm. Even though there's evidence that this leads to violence, actually it can work if we if we actually allow people to follow the convictions of their own conscience. Yes. I think I think that's right. It was there is no historical inevitability about this. Um, but the other thing I would add there though is that the idea of religious toleration and religious liberty is still it's incredibly complex because the notion of well what are the limits of toleration was a problem when Locke was writing and indeed now when we're dealing with a and when we use the phrase kind of secular state in 21st century Australia we have to be careful what we mean by that um, (laughs) because historically the state was never intended to be secular if secular is defined as being um like atheistical or anything like that. Um, But it's still a question of, well, hold on, to what extent can you tolerate? What are the limits of toleration? Um, What are the limits of toleration in terms of, obviously, you know, child sacrifice, female genital mutilation? This is still something with with 
which uh, liberalism grapples with. And now in some ways, uh, it's grappling with it from the perspective of what, like, what are the limits of toleration, ironically, in some ways, is kind of historical irony, isn't it, towards Christians. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but, but anyway, in the 17th, back in the 17th century, the limits of toleration, like the other fear, and this gets us back to like recognising, no, that the fear of descending into anarchy and bloodshed was real. The other fear, of course, which is connected to our, you know, one of the limits of this idea is that, and this is a very real fear, the fear is that uh, Catholics are, in the 17th century, the fear is, well, their allegiance is to the Pope because the, the Pope is the vicar of the Christ on earth, like he represents Christ. So their ultimate political allegiance is to the Pope. And so this raises an important question too, particularly in England, and this is something that Locke grapples with. Well, to what extent, even from a political, again, from the uh, perspective of maintaining civil order and civil peace, can you tolerate a religious minority if their ultimate political allegiance is not to your ruler, but to a foreign ruler, if technically they're allied to the Pope. And that actually becomes an idea, like the fear of Catholicism um, haunts from the Reformation onwards, really haunts um, the United Kingdom, Britain and her empire really well into the 19th century. But funnily enough, Locke was probably willing, so famously, like in that letter concerning toleration, Locke talks about well, you know, those cannot be tolerated who, and he has a point about atheists because they, first of all, because they, if they don't believe in a God, there is nothing that will bind their conscience. Like they don't believe in like any punishment. And so he doesn't believe that any of the bonds of civil society, oaths, covenants, promises can actually be maintained. But anyway, the other major group though he deals with is Catholics precisely because of that prospect of treason um, that I mentioned. But in really, it's a little bit, more complicated, Locke is probably willing to tolerate, and he wrote a number of letters on um, toleration, he's probably willing to tolerate Catholics if they can reject their own um, allegiance to the Pope. So they could maintain all kinds of other Catholic theological beliefs about transubstantiation um, and so forth, as long as in theory they profess that they can owe political allegiance to the sovereign, the monarch of the church, uh, or the monarch of England. Yeah. What he's really grappling with is the political ramifications of ecclesial differences, which, which in a way comes into tension with the hard boundary he draws between the, the sort of jurisdiction, if you like, of the magistrate and the ecclesiastical. Because, of course, in this period, as you've just outlined, Christianity churches are not completely divorced from politics there are implications particularly with catholics because i mean he is in a country that created a new church of england out of the catholic church that were was in there and there was a lot of conflict in that in that time between the two there's you mentioned the spanish armada before there are still catholic powers in europe there's enmity there are if you like to put it in very modern languages security threats that come and so it isn't a straightforward theological question and really i wonder if the analog today is more with political movements you know the question of where where the toleration is of political movements both left and right that are kind of anti-state that is they have a yes. political agenda yep. that 
whether it supports using violence or not, really wants to radically change the order and challenge the authority of the state. That's always a massive dilemma yeah. uh, for the state. And it's not just in so-called secular states. This is what you often find, because I worked on Islamist terrorism and intelligence a lot, you often find that it's autocratic Muslim regimes are the least tolerant of jihadists. And so you take a Saudi Arabia, yeah. for example, and it's because it, it's funnily enough not theologically not, not so much theological. That is, they will rehabilitate former jihadists quite easily because the, the truth is the gap between the jihadist theology and the official uh, sort of the Wahhabi theology of Saudi Arabia is not enormous. But that regime will book no challenge to their authority. And so any uh, sort of Islamist in Saudi Arabia that in any way challenges the regime and says you're not properly Islamic, they will, they will be suppressed ruthlessly because at the end of the day, the state's always going to protect its uh, interests. I can't remember why I went on that little yeah. uh, tangent there. <laughs> yeah, that's that is really interesting. Oh, it was about the limits of toleration. Yeah, and the fact that, yeah. that in even in Locke's day, the Catholic question in, in particular yeah. still has political ramifications, as I'm sure it did in France with the Huguenots, for example, and uh, and the like. But could I just? Another interesting aspect of this, because you have alluded to it a couple of times, you mentioned atheists, but there's also the question of non-Christian religions, quite a vexed uh, question in, in this period. And, and I was really mm. fascinated to learn from reading uh, the many excellent things you've written on this topic about this character, Bartolome de las Casas, uh, who found himself on the island Hispaniola in the early 16th century. I think Hispaniola is an island in the Caribbean, if I'm not, not yep. mistaken. Yeah, that's right. So this is a Catholic guy. This takes us out of the Protestant area. Yes. And, you know, he was exposed to the treatment of the indigenous peoples in that part of the world by the conquistadors. And he wrote this remarkable uh, text. I haven't had the privilege of reading it called In Defense of the Indians. Am I right that this is one of the first instances of a Christian... <laughs> starting to wrestle with the question of the liberties and freedoms of peoples that are just radically different, don't aren't Christian in any way, shape or form? Yes, that's right. And indeed, he was a real, he ended up being, because he basically, he, he actually endured his own change of heart and change of conscience. Initially, he was part of the Spanish conquistadors who went into that part of the Caribbean. And yet his own conscience convicted him. Um, and if you read his work, he basically, he was convicted by a passage in, um, well, in the Catholic Apocrypha um, in Ecclesiasticus, which talks about the fact that God is not pleased with any kind of sacrifice that is, that basically oppresses people um, and causes bloodshed. And he writes about that and that is the kind of how he attributes this kind of change of heart that he has and then begins to oppose the ways the way that the Spanish conquistadors are treating the Native Americans but and the particular instance which he does write about uh, a number of times is the fact that he was witness to uh, one of the chieftains refusing to be baptized and it's that that prompts him to write um, this discourse that critiques those Spanish 
colonial policies in which he basically argues that the Native American, well, the um, Indians of the Caribbean are actually human beings and therefore have natural rights. And these natural rights exist um, and extend to the fact that we cannot compel their conscience. If they refuse to be baptised, they refuse to be baptised. But the theology is central to, uh, it's interesting, again, because so many of the kind of, this is part of the history more broadly, of course, of human rights, but so many of our histories of human rights are very secular histories. But the theology of the Imago Dei is absolutely central here because the reason why Native Americans have, um, and the Native peoples of Central America there, have natural rights is because they're made in God's image. And that's like Cassius's argument. Um, and he has this whole debate um, back in Spain. And another interesting episode that I was really fascinated to discover, because this is all new terrain for me, but I also discovered this character in your writings, Robert Williams, who's the founder of what would become Rhode Island. Yeah, Roger Williams. Williams. Yep. Oh, sorry, Roger, Roger Williams in the early 17th, century and he he sets up this i guess it begins as a colony or maybe not i don't, don't know what the sort of oh, yeah. the technical categories are here but he sets up what what i'm guessing is either the first or an early instance of a polity that goes further perhaps than any other in setting up a sort of formal regime of religious liberty could you tell us a little bit about that strange and fascinating episode in the history of (laughs) religious liberty. Yes. So interestingly enough, Roger Williams does set up um, his own colony, partly because he's um, exiled from Massachusetts Bay Colony. And eventually he finds, um, he goes and lives with Native Americans and who help him incredibly um, during this period. And then he founds a colony and he calls it Providence initially. And then eventually it gets called Rhode Island. Um, but the so the novel thing about Rhode Island is that Rhode Island has no official, no established religion in its constitution whatsoever. It's also a majoritarian democracy, which is interesting for different um, historical and political reasons, but no official established religion. Whereas in the other American colonies, so of course this brings us back to our context of okay, so many of course um, effectively religious refugees left. England and left Europe, when they founded colonies in um, in North America, the idea was well, each of those colonies still had an official religion, um, but then if you didn't uh, like it, you would just go and found a different colony. But so what's novel about Roger Williams and Providence is that he founds a colony in which all religions, even, and he mentions atheists and Jews and um, also talks about, although I don't know if there were any historically, but Muslims, um, because, and he, again, ties this to ties it to his theological belief that God wants all people to, it's basically like discern the truth according to their conscience. Um, now, this doesn't believe that he's a moral relativist. He is, he does believe that there is one particular um, faith and truth, and he is a Christian, but he founds a state, a polity, in which there is no established church. And that's very novel. Um, and, of course, the kind of the novelty of the United States when they're founded and actually uh, Rhode Island becomes the first to uh, renege its allegiance to the British crown is that they have no established 
religion at law. And historically, this is, of course, in global history, this is the first, no official established religion. You know, one of, one of the interesting facets to this discussion is this idea of religious liberty emerges in the early centuries of Christianity. And we've already recounted example after example of Christian thinkers. I mean, Locke makes it pretty clear that he, you know, this is, he's not some atheist observer making these observations about Christianity. He's inside the, the tent, so to speak. Um, hmm. And we've got De La Casas, we've got Williams, we've dealt with the whole Reformation, the Luthers, the, the Calvins, uh, and, the, and the like. And yet, as you argue in one of the articles of yours I read, there, there really is this secular myth that mm. Christians are wholly and solely responsible for intolerance, bigotry, religious violence. And it's through this glorious non-religious, irreligious, atheistic, whatever you want to call it, enlightenment period where we discover actually we have these things called human rights. And it's kind of discovered despite Christianity. It's a kind of advance from Christianity. There's this kind of strange pseudo idea of progression where we go through different sort of phases and we we grow out of Christianity, if you like, into this secular myth. And yet, as I say, so far, we've, we've, we're able to tell an entire story, really, where <laughs> it comes out of Christianity, notwithstanding the truth about its conflicts and periods of intolerance of heresy and we've mm. some of the ills but a lot of the key conceptual work the discoveries the enlightenment dare i say comes directly out of christians reflecting on their own scriptures and what it means to be born in the made in the image of god for example so big theological doctrines so it's really a twofold question that seems to naturally arise one is what is the actual contribution of the enlightenment and oh. i wonder if it does have something to do with the emphasis on the individual but that's just a guess you're the expert and two why this myth like why, why how how have we succumbed to this idea that religious liberty is discovered in the enlightenment yes and yeah. has no, no sort of history before then well okay to address the second part of that question first um, really, it's probably due to the process of secularization that occurs with many of these ideas. Now, of course, when we use the term secularization, we need to define that term because, you know, historians and philosophers and political theorists and sociologists, like we all kind of use this term. When I refer to the idea that, look, there's been a kind of secularizing of this idea of religious liberty and actually the kind of story that we understand and tell ourselves about where this idea came from. What I mean is that some of the important theological content and the basis of the idea of religious liberty in the first place, namely that it relies upon the idea that, well, these rights exist because there is a God who endowed all people, um, all of whom are of equal moral worth and all of whom have these rights. That kind of theological idea begins in the Enlightenment, which we brings us, I think, to the first part of the question, um, that kind of theological idea begins to be superseded in some ways. Um, and perhaps actually, it's, it, but it's a very kind of fragile process in the Enlightenment because while the theological references 
start to like in important documents and so we could talk about some of these documents in a few moments like we talk about the french revolution for example while theological references to the idea of um the image of god for example and the natural equality like the equality of all human beings and so forth the theological basis begins in a very kind of um fragile way to be just kind of denuded from these texts but yet there's a kind of carapace that remains like there's a kind of claim a kind of shell claim that these rights exist that remains that's probably where we get this idea from that we can somehow you know claim these ideas out of nowhere but this is really one of the things that um this kind of secularizing in the sense of kind of slowly extracting the theological basis of these ideas starts to happen in the enlightenment i mean even when you look at the um american uh, the Declaration of Independence and the Constitution um, and so forth. The ideas that natural, like the idea about natural rights there, that all people have natural rights um, in the Declaration of Independence, for example, they are endowed by their creator with certain inalienable rights. Among these, every American um, can kind of parrot these off. Um, and I taught in America for a long time, so I'm just kind of, I'm just really entertaining. I'm married to an American, so like we know like, <laughs> things um but anyway the idea is endowed by their creator and even then in the declaration of independence uh drafted by thomas jefferson now jefferson is no small o orthodox christian but he still believes that there's a creator who endowed certain rights so that here this is a kind of uh a kind of neat example of um one of the moments in which you can start to see these theological ideas disappearing but when I say well look it's a kind of fragile and um, uneven process because you still have the idea that well where do these rights come from endowed by their creator um, and even when you look at the well a more famous um, like Thomas May Thomas Paine in 1791 the rights of man now Thomas Paine isn't a um, small o orthodox Christian either but he's still a deist like he still argues he sort of talks about his mind being his uh god and sort of the kind of classic enlightenment ideas about reason there and so forth but even for pain the idea is that natural rights exist because the creator but there he's not talking about yahweh he's not talking about a judeo-christian god but there's still a kind of creator god who gave these natural rights to people um and that's the kind of idea that kind of uh, secularizing idea that we start to see in rights documents that come out of, for example, the French Revolution, where um, the Declaration of the Rights of Man and Citizen, for example, of the French Revolution, will talk about everyone being free and equal in rights and so forth. But again, you start to see the theological content removed. But it's a very awkward thing because obviously the question is, well, where do these rights where do these rights come from and what are, what basis can you argue that there are natural rights if there is no god or no creator god like yeah once you start turning the creator god who acts in history into a kind of beneficent creator then you raise the question well how do we even know these rights exist anyway and of course in much more recent philosophy um atheist philosophers who follow this i mean really from Nietzsche onwards, but Peter Singer is a wonderful example of a contemporary philosopher who is an atheist who argues, no, of course, there are no such thing as um, <laughs> inherent dignity of human beings. That's a kind of Christian myth. And so if someone like Singer were to look at the 
the Declaration of the Rights of Man and Citizen, he would kind of say, no, as an atheist, like there's no such thing as kind of the natural and imprescriptible rights of human beings. So that process um, is a very awkward and fragile one. That's, that's very striking because it, should, it makes me mindful that we are in a particular phase in the process that's been going on for a few centuries where the, the theology starts to diminish. And like you say, you then have to reimagine <laughs> or re try and rediscover, or, or dare I say it, even construct rationales for preserving things you want to preserve. And it seems like we're on a, on a pathway to somewhere, but it's very difficult to say where are we going? And the, and the singer example is very instructive because the thing I always admire about the singers of the world is, is the integrity of their beliefs, the honesty and the consistency. And yeah. Yeah. in many ways, he shocks a lot of people with his ethics and the like. But I, I actually think they are much more consistent from an atheist yes. sort of general presupposition than a lot of atheists that I think want to have a bet each way and... Yep. Are desperate to kind of sneak in the Christian stuff in de-theologized form, yeah, and have to subscribe to a bunch of pretenses to make that work. Whereas the singers come in and say, "Well, no, 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 we've got to be honest here. If there's no God, then really there are no human rights per se." And this is not the only one that prosecutes this this view. Uh, and yep. that that does mean you have to be you have to think. You know, whenever we talk about history, you have to think about longer-term futures because we're not really – I think in some ways we're better at looking at the past because history is a kind of part of who we are as individuals, communities, nations, families have histories. Every kid on the planet does some kind of history of the world and or their, their nation. Religions have histories. And we tend to only think a couple of years into the future because – you know, for planning purposes, but you've got to think 50, 100, 200, 1,000 years in the future, and you wonder where this secularized view of conscience is going. Yes. Oh, I completely agree. And, in fact, this is one of the things that have this kind of observation about the fact that I think we're living in a completely anti-historical moment in which we as a, in sort of Western societies, no longer think that there are any normative historical stories. And we don't think of ourselves as formed by ideas or communities that have emerged historically. And we, instead, we have this kind of worldview that what theorists call expressive individualism, which I think is a useful term, but this is idea that nowadays life is all about self-fulfillment. Well, there's no history to self-fulfillment. There's a very a historical form of individualism. But I think it's incredibly dangerous because once you have societies that have no understanding of their history, they they have really no ability, like there are no normative stories and they have no ability to really even reason with or grapple with the past or indeed to any of with any of the ideas that they hold to be particularly important. I mean, one of the things that I really can't get over is the fact that my students love the idea of human rights when they come up in class, and yet they know absolutely nothing about their history. <laughs> and yet they're passionate about human rights, like the fact that human rights 
ought to exist, but they have no ability to actually engage in any kind of moral or philosophical reasoning about on what basis human rights exist, where they come from, what are the underpinning ideas in the first, like what are the, what are the underpinning, what's the underpinning like anthropology that presupposes the idea that there are inherent rights in the first place. They don't even know that not all civilization, civilizations and cultures have ascribed to these kind of ideas. So we're kind of living, I think, in a very dangerously anti-historical moment. So that's why, anyway, I've got a new book on um, that I'm writing at the moment really called The Death of History. And even, I'm, I'm not sure how much um, in your podcast you permit your guests to go into kind of personal asides so feel free to no you go as far as you go wherever you want so it's interesting like when you were talking about singer and the fact that so many people don't recognize that you can't actually maintain a kind of shell of christian understand understandings about the equality and value of human life and maintain atheism actually for me that's a that's a very uh that has a very personal significance because I actually grew up um, in a really loving and secular home, but this was actually the recognition that I had to undergo in order to actually grapple with the fact that um, as somebody who, as a university student and then even at graduate school, subscribed to atheism, I began to grapple with the fact that, oh, no, atheism cannot actually sustain my deepest moral intuitions. And that actually occurred through when I was at Oxford um, on a postdoctoral fellowship. I went to a series of lectures that Peter Singer gave and I was expecting to hear, um, cause yeah, they were on ethics and I was expecting to be um, quite affirmed in my own kind of beliefs, but actually it completely pulled the intellectual carpet out from underneath me as it were. And that actually began to set me on a path of really thinking about, well, hold on, what is it that is actually true about humanity and who we are and whether or not life has any inherent worth or meaning or value anyway yep oh, that that's really interesting so in a way singer helped convert you to christianity may not have been his intention but i'm sure it wasn't his intention um but I i'm think sure you're not the only one as well yeah I think <laughs> somehow that's right yeah, that's right. Actually, there's a book coming out next year full of people who are it's edited, um, I think, by Alistair McGrath, and it's actually called, um, or it's going to be about people who have, in many ways, come to Christianity through grappling with the new atheism. Yeah. I mean, in a way, I mean, there's the new atheism. That's a whole, whole other yeah. kettle and of fish. I wouldn't mind doing a whole po- podcast on this, that at some point because it was very interesting phenomenon and i say that in the past tense it kind of feels like it's it's past in some ways but it's probably going to have a lasting impact because i even when i was working for the government you know the guy on the bay next to me was was reading dawkins's uh, book i can't remember what it was called but you know whichever one it was in that that series of books from him and hitchens and harris and and the others but i wonder if uh in particular singer service is really to in a way he's he's a prophet because what he's doing is saying look i mean obviously he's not saying this this is my rendition he's saying don't believe all those atheists out there this is actually what what real atheism looks Mm -hmm. like these are the 
this is this is what an atheistic ethics looks like. You know, we need to consider the whether we should terminate yeah. children after they're born who yeah. are disabled yeah. because they're a burden on society. Because I mean, why why wouldn't you? And and on and on it goes. And so it's actually giving uh, people a greater look into at least one direction <laughs> that atheism can take us, which comes full circle to the whole where we started with Tertullian's insight about conscience and his argument to a pagan Roman empire that, you know, we are human beings with conscience and we have to, you know, that there's a there's an injustice if we're forced to or prevented from following our our conscience. And you look at the the sort of you call it very aptly the irony of history that there's this long legacy of Christians, you know, with fits and starts, and it's messy and murky. But they they are discovering in and developing this this thing called the freedom of conscience and its underpinning of religious liberty, all the way to this idea that in the case of De La Casas, a Christian in good conscience couldn't force an Indian to become baptized because that. <laughs> Even though it would potentially save his soul under Catholic theology of the the day, uh, that's not what what it means to be imago day. And so you now look at the the tables turning, and you wonder in a strange way if the new intolerance, if I could put it that way, or that's probably a bit bit unfair, but the the developing intolerance towards Christianity in various forms in Western liberal democracies you wonder if that is the thin end of the wedge that starts to implement the the sort of singerite implications of an atheism that no longer pretends that the detheologized right story really has any basis except in christian superstition yeah yeah no i think that's a really interesting question sarah in the time remaining we should say something about the Australian picture because you are working on that that too. It's just that the larger story is so endlessly fascinating and robust that it's it's hard to get off it. But let's talk about Australia. So it, it's found it's founded at a specific moment in this story, 1788. Well, founded. I mean, that's when yep. when colonization, European colonization begins. And it, it begins immediately with a kind of religious pluralism because we have Catholics, Church of England, nonconformists, and even some Jews, I believe it, on the, the first fleet. So where, where does the story of religious liberty in Australia, how do we even begin that? Yes. Other than the date of settlement. <laughs> well, it's such an interesting... Um, moment for Australia to be settled because, and for the sort of the colony of New South Wales to emerge, because of what's happening elsewhere in Britain and her empire, which is that since the time of the Reformation and indeed the um, various uh, test acts of the 1670s, there has been a situation in which, of course, you have an official church in England, the Church of England, and there are legal disabilities on those who are not members of the Church of England. And these extend to, so that like, you have to be a communicant member of the Church of England um, in order to hold public office, in order to vote and so forth. But in the uh, late 18th century 
and indeed in the early 19th century, things are beginning to change, not least because of a number of uprisings in Ireland. And so Australia, the sort of colony is developing at a moment in which it's really kind of crystallising many of these tensions because there is a kind of de facto sense in which, well, as a British colony, New South Wales and the other colonies have the church, like officially the Church of England, and yet there are Catholics, as you say, and yet there are Jews. Um, and, and so it's grappling with these kind of ideas. Um, and in fact, there is no, so like until 1804, there's no ability for Catholics, for example, to um, go to mass because there is no, there's so Richard Johnson's um, on the first fleet, the Anglican chaplain, but there's no Catholic um, until 1804 when actually a former uh, political prisoner um, who was a convict and who was a priest, he was part of the kind of Catholic rebellion in Ireland back in 1798. Um, he is emancipated and they let him celebrate the mass to enable the Catholic, like enable the, the Catholic um, members of the colony to actually partake in mass. But anyway, interestingly, in the colonies, you have this lively debate about freedom of religion, which is really surprising because one of the kind of narratives um, in the historiography and Australian history is Australians never really cared much about religion. It's a kind of post-enlightenment colony. Religion um, has really just been a kind of um, something that the state has had to kind of deal with uh, as a matter of pragmatism. And indeed, that's part of the way that most scholars have dealt with section 116 in the constitution too. But actually what I'm starting to find is that in the colonies, there's a really lively debate um, about freedom of religion. And so in, for example, in the 1820s, there are a series of really fascinating um, reform acts that are passed in the UK. And of course, really famously, the Catholic Emancipation Act in 1829. And this actually enables, um, this is another thing that a lot of my students are kind of dumbstruck by. This is actually the first time that Roman Catholics are able to hold public office. Um, and there's a really lively debate in the colonial press about that. In fact, there are colonial uh, newspaper editors who are Catholics. And so there's a really lively public sphere um, in which there are Catholics and Protestants. And then actually another really interesting thing in the colonies is that, and this is actually quite unique, is that um, in 1836, there is a decision under Gov Governor Burke called the Church Act, which enables funding um, from the colonial purse in order to support a number of different denominations. And in many ways, the Anglicans are, are quite like under Bishop Broughton, get very upset about this um, because it means, you know, you're potentially supporting and they do support the Catholics um, and support nonconformists and so forth. So there's a kind of plural idea that the colony might have a number of different denominations that it supports. But I think anyway, from a 21st century perspective, one of the reasons why all this colonial history is really interesting is that there was not a sense that the colonial state ought to kind of stamp out religion. On the contrary, there's this kind of idea that no, religion is healthy for public life, public um, and civil society is maintained in many ways by shared basic set of beliefs and um, and actually religion is something that even, I mean, the Church Act, right, it's the state, that actually we might be able to, that we ought to support in order to support a kind of lively public life and civil order. Sarah, one of the interesting specific episodes in the history of religious liberty in Australia, if we just sort of drill down to a, a case study, if you like, yeah. is this issue of conscientious 
objectives. I th- I, I'm hazy on the detail. You, you you know it. It's got something to do with the serving in the military, I think. And it and it's germane to something that we've alluded to several times in the course of this conversation, but we haven't really tackled, which is that, of course, religious liberty includes the liberty to not be religious at all. Yes. So this is it's really interesting. It's just a lovely example of the way that an idea which begins as a kind of a Christian idea that conscience and therefore the practice and the exercise of conscience ought to be protected is then actually widened so that conscience becomes something which is recognised to apply to all people, even if their conscience leads them to have no beliefs. And so the really, I think, really interesting example is that um, is conscientious objection. So in the earliest kind of Defence Act of the Commonwealth in 1903, there's a provision for conscientious objection to military service on the basis of those whose, and I think I'm quoting the act there when I say that doctrine of relig- doctrines of religious belief prohibit them from taking up arms. So there there's a sense, at least in 1903, that it's a religious conscience. But then the act is subsequently revised in 1910 and there's another one in 1939 and the idea is broadened so that the idea of religion is taken out in the 1910 revision. And then in 1939, and this is still the understanding of um, the protection for conscientious objections today, it is a broader understanding that all consciences are protected. But it's such a good example, I think, of the way in which actually historically the idea of protecting freedom of conscience emerges out of a close association of conscience with religious belief because conscience is held to be at the heart of human beings. And now it's widened actually to protect those consciences of non-believers. And in fact, even when you look at the way in which conscientious objection works, for example, in the medical field, um, it's a similar kind of story, a broadening of conscience so that there's a protection for conscientious objectors to various, you know, practitioners of medicine, regardless of whether that conscience is a religious one or not. Yeah, really interesting. Really interesting example of, like like you say, the, the religious concept, in a way, probably this is the wrong terminology becoming more secular because it's probably the wrong terminology just given how loaded and contested that is but at least breaking out to a more general notion of conscience it's not specifically tied to religion that's really interesting and finally in the remaining minutes there's, there's a really really fascinating story that you've written about and you you sent sent me i think a pre-publication paper that was just so fascinating to read and this this is in the australian context in 1927 and uh you've discovered very probably the first at least recorded instance of indigenous australians being accorded and or this idea that indigenous australians have a natural right yeah to religion religious worship freedom of religion yeah Tell us that story. It's, and, it's amazing. Yes, indeed. And actually arguing too, like Indigenous people arguing for the protection of that right, which is so fascinating. Um, I basically found this when I was looking through um, archives of newspapers. Anyway, so there's this case in 1927 in which a number of sacred stones called Terengi um, are, appear in Melbourne. And the probability is, so in the early 20th century, there's a kind of market for the, like the trade in Indigenous like sacred objects. Um, they appear in Melbourne probably to be sold on the private market. They belong to a French businessman. Um, but the story emerges that they're 
probably stolen, that actually they probably haven't been actually rightfully bought or sold in the first place. Um, and so there are various arguments about, well, maybe they should go to a museum. But actually a public campaign emerges, which is fascinating because this campaign argues that these stones rightly belong to the Arente people um, of Central Australia and they ought to be returned to them on the basis that they are a sacred object and that all human beings have rights to their sacred objects and the things that are important to them in worship. Um, and it's a really fascinating argument for a number of reasons, the argument itself and actually the people who are making the argument, um, not least because it's not just white advocates, so the evangelical um, bishop, Archbishop of Melbourne, uh, Harrington Clare Lees, is part of this, um, and a Baptist minister, John Henry Sexton, but actually Indigenous people too. There is a man representing the Arente people called Yamba, and also David Aniapon, um, the famous Indigenous um, activist who's actually, he's one on the $50 note. And they begin to, they make the same argument, and they are basically making um, a natural rights argument, which is along the lines of, look, Indigenous people are human beings. And in fact, even in the 1920s, this is an art like whether or not Indigenous people are human beings, that in fact has its own colonial history. And they're asserting, no, no, the Aboriginal people are human beings. And as human beings, they have rights to their sacred objects. Um, and so it's this interesting coalition of Christian leaders, and Uniapon is actually a convert to Christianity as well, arguing that Indigenous people have these sacred rights these um, rights to their sacred objects. And the analogy is it's akin to, to um, taking a white man's or cathedral. Like there's always this kind of analogy with um, a cathedral or an object, an object or place of worship in Christianity too. And it's really fascinating because A, this is not a story that really I think has been told as in the indigenous part of the history of religious freedom hasn't been told. But I think it's also really important in terms of the fact that, well, we know subsequently that there are all kinds of arguments for um, Indigenous connections to sacred places that have then been important in land rights petitions and indeed subsequently in native title cases. And I think there's a good case for arguing that these are actually, we, should, we ought to in many ways understand this as part of our history of religious freedom, which hasn't been done before either. So I think there's an important Indigenous story to be told here as well. Sarah, it's just one of many, many fascinating moments in not only the Australian story, but the global story of humans trying to grapple with differences of conscience, ultimately, and the way they manifest in different ideas, different practices, different communities, different identities. And I'm really grateful for the time you've given me to have this conversation and share your uh really amazing breadth and depth of knowledge on this topic. So thank you so much. Oh, thank you so much for having me. It was a lot of fun. <laughs>